0: Hello, and welcome to Episode 9 of Foreign Correspondents, a podcast about journalists. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than eight years' experience in Brazil and China. Just a few notes before we get started. It's been a crazy few weeks with the surge fires in the Amazon rainforest here in Brazil, and it's probably been the biggest story I've ever been at the center of. I was lucky since I happened to be in the Amazon at the time anyway, and was able to jump on the story. I did a lot of appearances on television and radio about what I saw out in the jungle. But there's one in particular I wanted to plug here, since it's a podcast. It's a show called Front Burner, produced by Canada's CBC Radio. I'm on the August 27th episode, so please look for it, and I'll also post a link in the episode description. One other note before we get to our guest. The show now has its very own Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash foreignpod. Please check there for new episode announcements and other stuff related to what we talk about on the show. It's also a great way that you can share the show without needing to be my friend on Facebook. Moving on. This week, I'm excited to share my interview with Brian Rosenthal, an investigative reporter on the Metro Desk at the New York Times. This conversation with Brian is probably the interview where I've learned the most, and I'm not talking about learning about Brian himself, although we do a fair bit of that. I'm talking about learning from Brian's approach to stories, which he'll explain as he walks us through a couple of his investigations. I'll definitely be ripping off some of his methods in my future reporting. I guess it's not so surprising, considering Brian made it to the Times at such a young age that he would have a few tricks up his sleeve. You'll hear all about how we met, but stick around to hear how Brian comes at the big stories, a method that definitely works as it's made him a Pulitzer finalist and got him to the Times where he continues to produce hard-hitting stories. Thanks for listening, and again, here's my conversation with Brian Rosenthal of the New York Times.
1: hey anyway, how how you doing i'm good it's a little early but i'm good how <laughs> yeah I, you wasn't, doing?
0: I wasn't sure if you were a morning person i'm doing pretty okay it's an hour later here at least right. so yeah Yeah, I'm not much of a morning person. So I have Brian Rosenthal on the podcast. Uh, Thanks for coming on, Brian. Thanks for having me. Can you just tell me like where you are, what time it is, what kind of week you've had? I am at home
1: in Midtown Manhattan. It is about 9am on Saturday. It has been a long week here in New York. I, I haven't really been involved in a lot of the Jeffrey Epstein coverage, but I feel like just following it has been tiring. (laughs) <laughs> um, so I am, plot. It's the weekend.
0: Cool. I mean, that's a semi because you're a metro reporter. It's a, it's being considered in courts there. So it's a semi local issue.
1: Yeah, absolutely. A lot of the people that are working on it now are metro reporters. I'm, I'm a little surprised I haven't been sucked into it yet, but I've avoided
0: it so far. Yeah, I was going to say, I guess Epstein's not quite related to Trump, but it must feel pretty good to have a beat that's not solely based on Trump right now in the United States. It seems like yeah. so many of my friends just covered Trump. Trump all the time.
1: Yeah, that's actually one of the things I like most about my job is cuz so much of the Trump coverage is so, you know, it's dictated by the man and the man is very uh <laughs> active and I don't envy those reporters they're running around all the time and going crazy in some ways. So I'm glad I, you know, have very
0: little to do with it. Sure. Yeah, I guess uh, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. We usually start way, way at the beginning. So let's start with where are you from and uh, where were you born? Uh, So I was born actually in Worcester, Massachusetts, but
1: I did not live there for very long. When I was one year old, my family moved to West Lafayette, Indiana, and that is where I grew up.
0: Okay. Wow. You're the second guest from Indiana. I mean, is that a small town in Indiana? It's
1: a somewhat small town. It is West Lafayette is where Purdue University is, and uh, the town is basically completely dominated by Purdue. It's a college town.
0: Gotcha. Are your parents professors or something, or they worked at the university?
1: Yeah, my dad was uh, just retired. He was a professor of environmental health. I studied air pollution.
0: And uh, your mom?
1: Uh, She was a nurse.
0: Okay. And uh, what was it like growing up in, you said West Lafayette, right?
1: Yeah, it was pretty quiet. It was pretty um, pleasant, honestly. I mean, the biggest thing for us is I have three brothers, including a twin brother. Uh, And so it was very hectic around the house, I guess. Just mostly with the brothers and and the family were all pretty close. So those are my overriding memories from west Piet.
0: Sure. Wow. Yeah. I have two brothers, but three. Yeah. That's a, a lot. I did. Three I within uh, five years. Wow. I mean, the twin helps. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but... I forgot you were a twin. I think I knew that. But uh, are you identical twins? What's the deal with that? No, we're
1: not identical, unfortunately. Everybody goes, fun.
0: ooh, like identical twins. They're like. Mm. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, sometimes I wish we were identical, just because you know we're basically just brothers. We do look pretty similar. We we act very similarly, and we're very close. Cool. Where does he live? He lives in D.C.
0: Okay. Uh, just out of curiosity, what did most of your brothers go into, or what do they do? So it's kind of funny because
1: my parents are both in the sciences. Basically, my dad is a study air pollution, and my mom is. You know, nurse, basically in medical, both on the science side. And all four of us went into liberal arts. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't know what that means. But my oldest brother is a lawyer. My middle brother works in media relations. And my twin brother works in politics, actually.
0: Oh, wow. Cool. Growing up, when did you start to get an interest in doing journalism?
1: It was not something that I had always wanted to do. And it really began just with working for the high school newspaper. I really wanted to go to a good college. And I heard that if you want to go to a good college, you have to do a lot of extracurricular activities. Uh So I joined everything in high school. (laughs) Um, I was on the debate team and the spelling bee team and the math ball team and the service organization, the Boy Scouts. And I also was on the newspaper. And Uh of all those things, I just loved the high school newspaper the most. And that's when I first even considered it as a possibility. So that's how it started.
0: Cool. Yeah. me too. I started on a, the Spartan spotlight at McFarland <laughs> yeah. High School. I mean, in retrospect, it was a strange place. Like we would always have like artwork on the cover, rarely photos and, you know, a lot of strange essays and not a lot of actual news. Uh, I mean, I interviewed the principal a couple times, but that was about it. Well, what was yours like? Was it a serious uh, endeavor or was it just, I don't know, what was it like?
1: It was pretty serious. West Lafayette was such a, um, it was a Really interesting high school, and it was a really good high school. I mean, public school, but one of the best public schools in, in the state because it was all professors' kids. Oh, and okay. there was a lot of high performing people there, and everybody kind of took themselves very seriously, and the newspaper was included in that attitude. So, you know, we did a lot of stories about the administration and about. I remember doing stories about teacher dissatisfaction, which was really <laughs> weird because as a kid, you don't you kind of think of adults as all monolithic. But this was about teachers dissatisfied with their pay, and it was significant stories like that. Although I did also have a dating column for the paper, so <laughs> it wasn't all serious.
0: What was it called? I want to know.
1: <laughs> it, it was called Dating for Dumbos.
0: Okay, okay. Yeah. Do you think you changed some lives with that? <laughs> I hope not, because the advice was terrible. <laughs> that's funny, though. But yeah, that's on a different level than uh, we were at. I mean, the probably the hardest-hitting story I was wrote up was like interviewing the principal about the gun scare or something like that, mm. um, which I guess is pretty serious when you yeah. think about it at the time. Okay, yeah, it makes sense that it was a little serious. I mean, how else do you go to Northwestern and go straight into the journalism school, which I assume you did, right?
1: I did. You know, Again, I, I wasn't totally sold on it. I was not necessarily planning to be a journalist or major in journalism, but I, I did apply directly to the journalism school at Northwestern. My logic was, I was told by my college counselor and people at that period that it's harder to transfer into the journalism school than to transfer out. So, At least if I started there, it would give me Options. Sure. So you know, even still, when I when I went there, I, I wasn't sold on it. But I did start working for the college newspaper immediately, the Daily Northwestern, and and that's what really launched me into journalism.
0: Yeah, and that's where we met. So you were a freshman when I was a senior.
1: Yeah. Well, I graduated in twenty eleven. So
0: okay, I graduated in two thousand nine. We both went okay, into so... humanities, but that's two years, I think.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, so I was a, you were a junior when I was a freshman.
0: Okay, so I wasn't around because I, I was in China all year and I come back as a senior and I just kind of had no idea what had been going on the past year. But that makes sense, you were a sophomore, because you seemed to really know what you were doing at that point. There were always a few of the serious reporters and then, you know, a lot of people who kind of drift in and out. But I remember I was working on the editorial page and I have one specific memory that to this day I still don't know know if you were trolling me or not, where you came (laughs) up to me, (laughs) you sat on the desk next to me and you're like, it was something like, you know, I think we should have more about bikes on the editorial page. And I was like, (laughs) bikes? Like what? And you're like, yeah, no, seriously, like bikes. And to this day, I don't know how serious you were, if you were somehow mocking me.
1: Uh, Uh, I I believe I was being serious. Uh, I uh, did bike everywhere on campus and I I really liked biking. So I think I just didn't realize how uh, the editorial side of it worked.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, we probably could have been more pro-bike. So, but yeah, like I would say the Daily, I did not major in journalism. I took a few classes. I thought about transferring in, but ultimately didn't because there were a lot of requirements. Honestly, it was the daily that kind of pushed me into journalism and kept me interested. And I think that's the case with a lot of people. Like I've talked to Noman on here, Noman Merchant, uh, and he, you know, similarly was way into the daily. And a lot of the people we know, I think, who went into journalism after college were uh, somehow did extracurricular journalism. And I think the rest, I don't know where what they went into. Also, <laughs> yeah,
1: well, I, I always say trip. I was lucky enough. To- to go to one of the best journalism schools in the country. But that's not what taught me journalism. The classes did not teach me journalism. Daily Northwestern did.
0: (laughs) Did you become the editor eventually? I mean, obviously, I was long gone. Or or, (laughs) where did you go at the paper?
1: Uh, I did. I became the the editor-in-chief. Oh, wow.
0: So that's like living, breathing it. I mean, working like 40-plus hours a week. That's probably a conservative saying 40.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I slept on that couch in the editor's office, Many a time, and uh, <laughs> it was completely my life.
0: You liked it, though, or, or how do you feel about it in retrospect?
1: Oh, I loved it. I still think it's the best job I'm ever going to have. There's just something special about it. When you are with your fellow students, you know, you got to be scrappy. You got to work at it. And you have so much control, too. I mean, when are we When are we ever going to have that much control over the product that comes out? Um, you know it's it's just such a unique experience and I'm I recommend it to every everybody I talked I was talking to high school students yesterday, actually, and I just recommended it so much. I think it's really, really an amazing experience.
0: Yeah, I loved it. I loved the editorial board and how we'd all get in a room and decide what the editorials were going to be or what candidates we were going to endorse. And yeah, there was nobody else to tell us what to do. And when yeah. else is that going to happen, except maybe at the very end of our careers, if we managed to make it to the top of one of these organizations.
1: Nobody And even if you manage to make it to the top of one of those organizations, it's not going to be the same. It's going to be, you know, the bureaucracy you're going to have to deal with. It's not like the college newspaper experience.
0: Right. Yeah, that's true. And you were talking to uh, students like high school students. That must be tough giving uh, prospective journalists advice given where things are at. Uh,
1: Yeah. Well, (laughs) whenever I talk to students, I try and just get them excited about the profession because I think there are pathways no matter how the industry appears to be. If you are determined, you I think can do whatever you want these days still, and it's just a matter of having the passion for it, and that's what I try and emphasize.
0: Right, yeah, and you're clearly evidence that that is possible.
1: (laughs) Well, (laughs) I think that's why I am asked to speak to students often is I've managed to get where I am at a relatively young age, and so I'm not just an old person talking to them about my career. I I can actually give practical advice about how to get there in a time that they can actually imagine is feasible in their lives.
0: Yeah, this is something I've talked about quite a bit. I get out of college. I go and work at the Myrtle Beach Sun News and I kind of work there a little over a year and I'm looking around and I see kind of the latter progression that I thought in my mind was how it would work of I work in Myrtle Beach for a few years. Maybe I get a job in Columbia, South Carolina. Maybe I get a job then in, I don't know, Charlotte. North Carolina, if I'm lucky, maybe then I get a job in Atlanta, get a job in, I don't know, some other city. And then finally, maybe 20 years from now, I'll work in New York or D.C. or some big city. And I was like, oh, this, I'm not cut out for that. I'm not going to do that. And so that's why I kind of pick up and move to China and kind of try to shortcut it. And I feel like that path I described is disappearing, but you took a path kind of like that. I I mean, I imagine it started in college. Did you did you do a lot of journalism internships to start? Yeah,
1: yeah, that, that's exactly how it started. I, I did five internships at wow. five newspapers in five different states.
0: Wow. Yeah. And this is why I kind of like, that's similar to my interview with noman I imagined you being the same as him, kind of just extremely focused from the start, doing all the right things. And when I graduated, I just hadn't done any of that stuff. So I was <laughs> like, ugh, how, how can I? Okay. <laughs> Uh, get through this but w- i guess w- when had you really locked in like already after your first two years or something or because you said you came in and you still weren't fully convinced
1: yeah I mean I think the daily is a magical place and i was pretty hooked pretty early on so by the time i got to the end of freshman year i was i was really you know thinking about internships I mean i also needed money obviously so i needed a job for the summer and i really liked doing journalism so i figured if I I could find a journalism job that would be ideal. So the internships I ended up doing, so one of them was was the one that's required by Medill called Journalism Residency. But the other four were the summer after freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior, and they were all paid internships. I couldn't have afforded to do unpaid internships. So I had to really look for those opportunities. It was harder to find those. uh, But that was really important to me.
0: Yeah, I remember people would apply in the fall or something crazy for the following summer (laughs) internship. And like, you know, there were only so many paid ones. And yeah, you had to really be on top of your shit. So uh, walk me through where, where are some of the places you interned at? And does anything particularly stick out in your mind about your experience interning? various places
1: yeah so the first internship i had after freshman year it was through a program in indiana called the polium internship Uh which is a great program that places students at paid internships at small newspapers throughout Indiana. And I did mine at the Logansport Ferris Tribune in Logansport, Indiana, which is a much smaller city than than West Lafayette, actually. Population 8,000, circulation of the paper 5,000, and news staff of five, including me, the intern... (laughs) (laughs) So that was quite an experience just in terms of seeing a local newspaper and seeing all parts of the newspaper because everybody did everything there. Sure. Then after sophomore year, sophomore year was, I feel like, the big break for me. I really wanted a really ambitious internship, and I applied to 75 places that summer. Wow. That is on top of your shit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I remember I only got two of them, and one of them seemed very, very bad. So my other option (laughs) was the Reno Gazette Journal in Reno, Nevada.
0: Oh, that's pretty good.
1: Yeah, and I, I had never imagined I would be living in Reno, Nevada, but that's where I went. You know, that's a bigger... Newspaper, and you know, I worked for the high school paper. I'd worked for the college paper. I'd worked for the Logan's Port Ferris Tribune. But when I started working for the Reno Gazette Journal, that's when I really got my taste of what major journalism was. And I just remember, I ran around that summer so much. I lived actually in the managing editor's basement, um, <laughs> and I must have, you know, it was a ten week internship. I think I wrote over a hundred stories. Wow! It, I I just was all over breaking news. There were there were wildfires. There was a plane crash. There were so many quirky crime stories in Reno. I did everything, and it was it was a really great experience.
0: Wow! Yeah, that's cool. Huh? And from from Reno, I mean, what were your last couple?
1: Next was journalism residency during junior year, uh, and that was at the Seattle Times. I love the Seattle Times, and we'll return to it in a moment. Um, then the summer after junior year was at the Orange County Register uh, in California okay. covering politics specifically. And actually, I was in the D.C. Bureau, and so I was covering the congressional delegation that was really great for me, and that will come in later, too, covering politics. And then after senior year, I did an internship at the Washington Post. And the notable thing about that internship was it was not a reporting internship. I huh. really I wanted a reporting internship, but they would not hire me for a reporting internship. They hired me to be on the interactivity team.
0: Okay.
1: Well, the interactivity team does not exist anymore. It was... <laughs> uh, <laughs> Its primary job was comment moderation. Um, oh, wow. It, yeah, it was all about interactions with reporters and editors. So comment moderation, we facilitated live chats that reporters did, which was a big thing at the time. We did photo gatherings. We did news, quizzes, uh, which was a big thing at the time. It was that type of thing, which not I knew it was not what I wanted to do for my career, but it was an opportunity to be at the Washington Post. Um yeah. and I managed while I was there to do some print stories on the side, which was really fulfilling.
0: I'm somehow not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What sort of stuff? How did you manage that? Did you just walk up to an editor and start pitching them ideas?
1: Essentially, yes. And I had to get clearance from my actual boss. I mostly did reporting on nights and weekends, but sometimes you got to call government officials during the day and there were comments to be moderated. So, um, <laughs> you know, I had, to, I had to get permission. But I yeah, I went over to the Metro editor, a guy by the name of Vernon Loeb, and and told him, you know, my situation. And I think he was impressed by my ambition. So he had me write a couple of stories about transportation and... Uh... Which we'll come
0: back to also. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. And then I remember toward the end of the summer, there was a, a hurricane that came through. I forget which hurricane it was in the summer of 2011. It may have been Irene. Actually. You know, they needed people to staff the hurricane to go out in the city and assess the damage and just do the work that was required. And it was all hands on deck and they needed more people. And I volunteered and that was a really good experience,
0: too. That's great. Yeah. Okay. You go through all these internships. Is there any particular thing you think you learned just uh, fr- from being an intern at these various places?
1: I think the most important thing I learned was just how newspapers work, which is turns out to be really important. If you're going to succeed in journalism, you have to have a sense of not just doing your job well, but also navigating the job and navigating the politics of a place and, you know, the different avenues there are to doing what you want to do. And I feel like seeing different papers of different sizes in different places from different perspectives really enabled me to see the bigger picture in a way that would soon become very helpful in kind of navigating the early stages of my career. Uh, So I would say that was the biggest thing.
0: Yeah, I wonder if that's the difference between you and me because I came out of school and I was out of work for a while and I finally got this job in Myrtle Beach and I'd not worked at a newspaper before and so maybe that's what it was. I didn't necessarily understand how it worked and so I saw this kind of long road ahead and I didn't really understand how to get where I wanted to go so I was just like, this direction is not for me. I've got to figure out a different way. So you came out of that, I presume, thinking, okay, this is possible. This is something I can do. And how did you end up at The Seattle Times?
1: So I actually got an offer from The Post to stay on as a contract reporter doing reporting. But before the summer had even began, I had gotten an offer from Seattle. They were looking for a fellow to do a basically a fellowship there, a three-year program that they have. And Basically, my internship had gone so well that they had thought of me and they had reached out and asked me to do it. And I said, I have this internship, but I would do it after. And so when the summer came, I had that decision about whether I was going to keep that commitment to the Seattle Times or whether I was going to stay on at the Post, which was really my dream job at the time. You know, as somebody who I was a political science double major, my family is all really politically active, actually. D.C. is has kind of a Special place in my heart. And the Washington Post has a special place in my heart. So I really wanted to be there. But I felt like I would learn to be a journalist better at the Seattle Times. And I mean, I'd worked at both places. And so I knew the landscape. And I thought I would get more opportunities. And I would advance my own abilities and my career more by instead of working my way up the lowest point of the post, going off and learning to be a journalist and then coming back as a more fully developed person. Um, And so that's what I did. I I went to Seattle and did that three year fellowship.
0: Three years?
1: Yeah, it was uh, basically the program still exists. It's a great program. Basically, you are brought on and you're full time for three years and you cover whatever they need you to cover. And the only difference is you're not paid as much.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean I know there are a lot of different schemes like that. Like I mean I did a graduate trainee scheme with Reuters that was 9 months which is basically yeah, you get paid less, but uh I mean yeah, generally those programs are pretty good. I mean they're still paying you a fairly decent wage. Like definitely if you're in your 20s you can get by. Um yeah. I I think that takes a lot of confidence to to say, I'll be better in Seattle, I'll get more of a base, but I can get back to that other stuff um, afterwards will be better for it. The Seattle Times,
1: you know, it's fallen on hard times these days, as a lot of newspapers have, and, right. a, and a lot of people have left. But it was for a long time, one of the absolute best newspapers in the country. And it was renowned for its investigative reporting specifically. And uh-huh. when I interned there, the number of incredible investigative reporters there was really inspiring. And I mean, I had a great internship there and And I knew that I was going to have a great fellowship there, too. And so it was kind of taking taking the sure thing over the contract possibility at the post. And that's how I made that decision.
0: Sure. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you ended up covering education there. Is that right?
1: The uh, K-12 education reporter was... Uh, on a fellowship, you know, one of these, I don't think it was the Neiman Foundation, but it was something like that. So she was gone. And so I stepped in on day one and was the K-12 education reporter covering Seattle public schools and public education in the state. Great opportunity for a first be out of college. And so I ran with that and I did that for a year. And then the reporter came back. And so then I I needed something else to do. And then I was put on politics. Like I said, that came into play and I started covering local politics and then state politics Again, just kind of some happenstance happened. They lost a state reporter based in Olympia, the capital, which is about an hour outside of Seattle. And they needed somebody to move down there for the legislative session. And they needed somebody who didn't have any kids and didn't have a lot of roots and was able to just move for a temporary period. And I volunteered for it and so that's the next step that I took.
0: Yeah, wow, that's uh, similar a bit to my experience in Myrtle Beach just in so much as like the state house reporter retired and they just didn't fill the position. So while they didn't move anybody over there, like they needed somebody to cover governor candidates when they came through town. So my claim to fame and and an oft-repeated story is I was there when Nikki Haley was endorsed by the Tea Party in a Kmart parking lot Mm -hmm. in Myrtle (laughs) Beach before she was anybody and like got the opportunity to chase her around and yeah i mean unfortunately attrition i feel like is often what generates opportunities yeah Um, Okay. Wow. Well, that's yeah, a lot in three years. And so, did you wrap that up and immediately make a jump, or did you stay on longer, or how how did it go? How did you get to Texas?
1: Well, I actually about two years into the fellowship, I actually got promoted to being a full time reporter. Oh, cool. And so, yeah, and I got a raise, and it was great. But about a year after that, I had actually hit my three year mark in Seattle, and a lot of the people who hired me were leaving. It was really tough financially for the paper. The executive editor who brought me in and some of the investigative people that I really admired were leaving. I was kind of thinking about Making a move. And then I received a call from Vernon Loeb, who had been the Metro editor at the Washington Post, who Mm -hmm. I had approached and told that I wanted to do print stories, and he had allowed me to do print stories at the Post. He had just left the Post and taken a new job as managing editor at the Houston Chronicle, Mm -hmm. and he wanted me to come down and join him. I guess I'd impressed him with my three stories (laughs) that I'd written. But more importantly, my ambition. So, you know, again, it was a tough decision, but I felt like a change would help me grow. And so I decided to make a move. So that's when I moved down to Austin to be in the Austin Bureau covering state politics
0: for the Houston Chronicle. That's where I drop in again, if I believe. <laughs> and, uh, it had been a few years, but I saw you down in Austin and another reporter, Sean Walsh. And yeah. that must have been a few years ago at this point. I don't know, five years maybe less but at the houston chronicle you were covering the state house in austin right Did I get that's that right yeah. okay so th- that's what has me a little bit confused because your big story was also about education right how did that yeah. happen
1: so i was covering the legislature uh, and in texas the legislature meets only once every two years because oh, okay. they don't they don't like government down there <laughs> and funny. uh So 2016 was a year in which the legislature was not meeting. And years in which the legislature is not meeting are actually real opportunities for investigative-minded people because instead of having to cover the session and the hearings and the votes and the press conferences and the debates, uh, you have a lot of time to do more ambitious work. So coming into 2016, I actually met with Vernon and I said, listen, I really want to do a very ambitious investigative story this year. And he said, okay, about what? And I said, I don't know. I just want to do something big. And so I ended up calling basically everybody I knew, all of my sources, all the advocates and the lawmakers and the lobbyists and everybody I'd interacted with. And I just was very blunt with them. I said, listen, I want to do a real big investigation. What should I investigate? What has nobody looked at? I reached out out to probably 80 people. And I had 80 conversations. And I got 79 terrible ideas. Um, (laughs) But I got one idea that immediately struck me as something that did need to be investigated and could be a massive story. And that was a tip that the state of Texas had secretly put a cap on the number of kids that could receive special education services. So that had come from an advocate for kids with disabilities who had noticed huge numbers of kids with disabilities being turned away from special ed and had Uh started to do some of his research. He had complained to the state government about what he found. He'd complained to the federal government about what he found. He had tried to file a lawsuit and nobody was listening to him. So he wanted to go to the press. And at that very moment, I walked into his office. And so that's how that story came to be. I told Vernon about it and immediately he recognized it and he gave me the time to
0: pursue it. Wow. I mean, obviously, contacting 80 people is not easy, but yeah, it is uh, interesting how kind of you know it is just that simple you recognize a good an interesting thing or something that needs to be done when you hear it but yeah I don't know that I would have re- recognized the other 79 ideas as uh being necessarily <laughs> <Yeah>. bad
1: <laughs> there, there um, actually was one other good idea that I really someday I'll come back to because it, it was a really good idea but I think there's power in just being I found this throughout my career and I try and deploy this throughout journalism. Now, just even reporting, just being very blunt. Like I said, I want to do a big investigation. What should I investigate? And that was the question that got me the answer.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's probably good advice. I wonder if I should be more blunt sometimes. I will say sometimes when I'm really like hungover at work, which I haven't been lately, but I used to be when I was younger, I would be much more blunt and to the point in interviews. And I would find like the interviews wouldn't sprawl as much and I'd get what I needed and things like that. And I was like, oh, maybe I do need to be a bit more like that in general.
1: Well, people respect you more if you just, I mean, I find this with uh, reaching out to victims. Now, when I'm doing a story about victims, you know, before I talk to them, I write out a long email that I can send to a large number of them, spelling out. exactly who I am, exactly what the story that we're pursuing is, why we want to do the story. I'll say that, you know, we are hopeful that this will lead to a change in policy. The type of thing that you might not say right off the bat, but I just feel like when you lay all your cards on the table, why you want to talk to that person, why they are going to have the story that's going to connect with the public, people, I think, respect you more for it. And so that's what I have
0: increasingly tried to do. Wow. Yeah. No, I hadn't thought about that. I might steal that from you at some point. (laughs) Are the two stories you've thought of? Did you have a chance to think about two stories first? Well, one is,
1: I mean, the story that I'm most proud of in my career is the special in story
0: i mean i will say that when i met you in texas you know sean and other people were like uh oh, something about brian and some big story and i definitely didn't realize how big of a deal it was until like you know we were driving to a wedding or something and like i heard about it on the radio or something like that and i was like oh man i shouldn't have given him shit about that it actually is a really big deal but anyway yeah let's let's go back and w- walk me through it from uh, after you get the idea where how it goes well
1: the question was how to prove it i mean the tip itself was that the state of texas had secretly illegally and systematically denied special education services to 250,000 kids with disabilities the state had intentionally secretly hurt Thou- hundreds of thousands of the most vulnerable people in the state. It was crazy. And so the question was how to prove it. And I went first to the data. And the nice thing about the story and the pursuing the story was that the data very clearly showed that Texas had the lowest rate of kids receiving special ed services of any state in the country. And just that fact had never been reported. The reason I say that's great is that when I'm doing investigation, I like to think about the minimum story. Even if everything goes wrong, What is the story? At the very least that you can say. And we already had a really good minimum story. The minimum story is that Texas has the lowest rate of kids in special ed in the country by far, and uh-huh. advocates are upset about it. So once the numbers show that, instead of diving into, you know, the tipster had found the policy and had really been pushing me that, that was the policy to look into. But instead of diving into that policy, I decided to dive first into special ed rates and try and understand that. So the first thing I did was I called a lot of education experts and just asked them, what could possibly explain the fact that Texas had below a special ed rate in the country? Let's put some numbers on it. In the country, the national average is that about 13% of students receive some form of special ed, even if that means just 20 minutes of speech therapy a week you know, even if they get a very small amount, they're included in that 13%. And Texas had been at close to that 13% in the early 2000s, and it had fallen down to 8%, which doesn't seem like a huge difference. 13% to 5%, it's only five percentage points. But in a state like Texas with 5 million kids, that corresponds to 250,000 kids. So I just asked a lot of education experts, what could possibly explain that drop and that low number. And really, I got a lot of potential theories, but none of them checked out. And when none of them checked out, we felt really confident that we could dive into this policy as the really sole explainer for why this had happened. So that's what we did. Uh, We interviewed literally hundreds of teachers and special ed evaluators and Special ed providers and, and administrators and all kinds of people about this policy and the impact that that had. We got dozens of people to talk about how they had been frustrated because they'd been punished for giving special ed to too many kids, or they'd been ordered to remove kids from special ed because of this policy. Uh, we also obtained a lot of documents. One of the key documents was uh, something called a corrective action plan, uh, which is basically a document that school districts had to fill out when they got in trouble for. Giving special ed to too many kids. And we were able to actually obtain the corrective action plans that spelled out how they were going to fix this problem of having too many kids in special ed. And so those documents uh, and those interviews were just really powerful evidence of that crazy tip that we had received.
0: Wow. Did you find that just because of people's urge to do the right thing that by and large people wanted to help you out? Or did you encounter a lot of people who? I didn't want to talk to you
1: yeah we did a lot of people that didn't want to talk to us, also a lot of people that they felt like they were doing the right thing, and they mm-hmm. defended the policy. A lot of people in schools, teachers, etc., assumed that the policy was either backed by research, you know, research that showed that only, you know, 8% of kids have a disability and the others uh, in, inappropriately put in special ed, either backed by research or mandated by the federal government. And, of course, neither of those things were the case. There was no research to suggest that that only 8% of kids need special ed. And in fact, the research suggests that it might even be higher than 13% that need it. And of course, it was not set by the federal government. I did get a key interview with one of the creators of the policy. And that was really the big moment that I think sealed everything in terms of proving the story. And uh, after that, we just had to find kids and families to make it compelling and it. But the interview with the creator, I talked with her and, you know, she defended the policy. She said that it was put in place because there were too many kids in special ed, that there was over-identification and stigma attached to that. And then I, I got the chance to ask her the question that had been burning in my mind for months, which was that they had set this policy at 8.5%, this cap at 8.5%. Mm-hmm. Why 8.5%? It's such a random number. <laughs> So I finally got the chance to ask her why 8.5%. And she she said it was based on the percent of kids in special ed at the time, huh. which which was uh, – and I interrupted her because I said, no, 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 that's, that can't be true because the percent of kids in special ed at the time was almost 13%. So that can't be true. And she paused and she said, well, it was based on the percent of kids in special ed at the time. And then we just – moved it down a little bit because we wanted <laughs> to move it. We wanted to move we had too many kids in special ed, so we wanted to move it. And that said that this was completely arbitrary, that this was all about removing kids from Special Ed. And, you know, that said everything right there. So at that point we felt like we had this crazy tip proved and we set about finding some kids and we found the right kids that helped us tell this story. And so we ended up publishing part one in September of 2016. I'd started working on it in February 2016. So it had been about seven months. And part one was basically laying out our findings and also telling the story of one boy, Ronan Walker, with a terrible story of, of what happened to him. And we published. And the next day the Uh, Feds opened an investigation, and within three weeks, the policy was suspended and ultimately removed, and a whole lot of uh, reforms
0: were put into place. What happened to the woman out of curiosity?
1: The creator? Yeah. Uh, She was fine, to my my (laughs) knowledge. She'd already retired. I mean, not going to come after her for that.
0: Sure. Yeah. But I assume somewhere in there, the feds found something was illegal about that.
1: Yeah. So the federal government ended up doing, by the way, there was a lot of pushback at the time, which in retrospect is, you know, almost not worth discussing, but at the time was very stressful. The state denied this. They had basically claimed that the reason that their special ed rate had fallen was that they had developed new teaching techniques that were so innovative that kids didn't need special ed because they got so much help in regular education, which was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they they stood by that. There was a lot of pushback. Other media organizations were skeptical. It just seemed too crazy that the state would actually do this. And the feds opened an investigation, but the result of that investigation did not ultimately come out for another two years. So there was a two-year period where it was allegations and denials. You know, it was stressful. <laughs> But, yeah, the federal government came out with their investigation in January of last year, and it found that we were completely right about everything and penalized the state for violating special ed law in several different ways and uh, they ordered the state to make some corrections. And so last year, the state acknowledged responsibility and put forward a plan to spend $3 billion more billion on special education.
0: That's great. Wow. That's quite a project for an off year. And um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a huge impact. Wow. And yeah, I mean, I definitely didn't realize how big of a deal it was when I first heard about it. Did you realize how big of a deal it was before it came out or how big of a deal it was going to be or how big the reaction was going to be? Obviously, you knew it was an important story that needed to be reported, but did, did you realize what the reaction was going to be?
1: I had an epiphany looking at the data kind of midway through the reporting. The People that were defending the state had said that this was just part of a national trend, that the special ed rate around the country was declining and Texas might be a little faster, but the whole country was going down uh, in special ed rate and that this was just kind of a natural thing. And one day I looked at the data and indeed it showed that there had been a reduction in special ed uh, around the country. But I, I decided to remove Texas and, and look at what the rest of the country was doing. And it turned out if you remove the dramatic, unprecedented reduction in special in Texas, the rest of the country was actually flat. They had stayed the same. Huh. But Texas, because it was so big, it was such a big state and their reduction had been so significant, it had made the entire country look like it was... It was a nationwide reduction in special ed. And when I saw that, I just, that was really remarkable to me. And at that point I realized this could be really big because that is, I mean, it's just, it, The conversation, even in all the education journals, was about this reduction in special ed in the country. Um, And nobody had realized that it was basically all driven by one state. Um, Yeah, wow. So anyway, I I did have a sense. And in fact, Vernon, who had been my direct editor on the project, he uh, turned to me the day we were going to hit the publish button and he said, this policy is going to be gone. Everything's about to change. And he was right.
0: And yeah, the piece, uh, I mean, it spurs an investigation. Uh, All the other media is talking about it, even if they are referring it to as allegations and things like that. And it got nominated for a Pulitzer, right?
1: Yeah, it was a finalist uh, in public service. And uh, that's how I got my job at The Times as well.
0: Yeah, you get nominated for a Pulitzer, I can only imagine, or you're a finalist. I think they're the same thing people use they, them they prefer, they
1: prefer to say finalist
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. oh. <laughs> interesting it's not an
1: oscar nomination
0: <laughs> right i imagine that felt great to find that out and i mean that obviously puts you on a lot of people's radar so uh, with the new york times where you work now i always present this kind of i don't know if you know much about saturday night live but i do uh, i watch it yeah Saturday Night Live, run by Lorne Michaels, and people describe this process of getting onto Saturday Night Live, where he or somebody who works on the show sees you do something. You probably don't even know that they see you, and then they invite you to an audition. And I've always, and then you audition, and then if you get it, you get it. And I've always imagined that the New York Times is this place where it's kind of like they read a story you do, they become aware of you somehow, and they're like, oh, this guy's interesting, and then they tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, come apply for our thing. Is that how it works? Is that how it worked with you? Because I kind of assumed that was how it was. They saw, oh, this big piece, you were nominated for a Pulitzer, you know, let's talk to this guy.
1: Yeah, that is exactly how it worked for me, actually. And what they did with me, which they often do, is they did not bring me in for any specific job. They had seen that I had done this piece, which they admired. So they wanted me to come in and they flew me out to New York and they had me meet with a ton of editors of the paper. I met with the DC bureau editor. I met with the business editor. I met with the culture editor. I met with the investigations editor, obviously a bunch of assistants from different places and assistant managing editors. And of course, I met with Dean McKay and I met with the managing editor, Joe Khan, And I now also met with the Metro editor, who was Wendell Jamison at the time. And I basically met everybody and it was pretty clear that they were going to hire me. The only question was what, what they were going to have me do. And they basically, everybody who met me got together and in a room and would via an email and said, all right, who wants them? Yeah. Um, I don't know if Metro really really wanted me or everybody else really did not want me, but um, Metro got me. And so I was, yeah, that's how I got the job as I'm an investigative reporter embedded with the Metro
0: desk. Was that a dream come true? That's obviously your big break. I often ask people, what do you think your big break was? And I mean, I think this story and getting to the New York Times has to be it for you. I mean, yeah. how did you feel about it?
1: Well, I had always imagined that I would get to the Washington Post, just huh. in my head. Like I said, D.C. is is an important place to my family. Two of my brothers now live there. I always read the Washington Post growing up. I did not read the Times as much. So I always thought I would, I would get to the Washington Post. But, you know, the Times is a pretty great place to land, too. And uh, I was obviously thrilled. It, it had really been my plan all along since I had left the Post and— you know, kind of went westward to learn how to be a journalist. Um, I wanted to come back and I wanted to come into a major national publication. And I didn't want to come in at the ground level. I wanted to come in at a place where I could be a significant person and, you know, really grow from there. And I got exactly the opportunity I wanted. So it was very gratifying
0: yeah that's amazing congratulations thank you (laughs) Um, so you came into the metro desk as an investigative reporter and now you report on transportation by and large from i mean the stories i've heard you've done did you start there and they're like did they divvy things up and they're like brian you're going to do transportation or did it evolve naturally
1: no it was and I'm, i'm actually not Focused on transportation. Um, <laughs> it's, so I, I'm an investigative reporter, and so I do investigative projects. I've been here for a little over two years, and I've done two major investigations with some kind of smaller stuff thrown in there. In the beginning, they wanted me to just kind of get my feet wet. And then in the middle of the two projects, they had some other things that they needed help with. So I've done other stories, but I basically had two major investigations, one about the subway uh, system in New York, the other about the taxi industry in New York. Now, both of those are transportation-related, but that's a coincidence, actually. They just happen to both be about transportation. And uh, my next project, uh, I assure you, is not going to be
0: about transportation. <laughs>
1: yeah. Not that okay. there's anything wrong with transportation. But, you know, I just want to kind of uh, widen the scope of the things I'm covering.
0: Sure, sure. That makes sense. But, yeah, you've covered the hell out of transportation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. That makes sense. You you can probably move on to yeah the next thing. Um, I will say, me and my wife did watch uh, your show. I won't say exactly how I was able to watch it um, <laughs> in Brazil. So the show is the weekly a New York Times show on FX, is that right? And also on Hulu. And you were on the second episode to talk about your investigation into the taxi system and the medallion system by which the city controls taxis, um, which I assume is the subject of your second investigative piece you mentioned also. And that's how you got roped in the show.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I started working on my uh, investigation into the taxi industry last summer. And around that same time, the Times of starting a new television show and So they asked if they could follow me around on my reporting. We published the print story, well, at least part one and part two of the taxi investigation. Part three is still to come. Uh, But we published parts one and two in May, and the show aired in early June. So it was really good
0: timing. So I started watching it, and I'm like, ah, taxis. you like, I've heard about the medallion system, and I've heard, like, how little money these guys make. I thought it was just going to be, like, uh, looking into things I already knew. And then, you know, it turns out there was screwed up in all these other there different ways that I didn't know. <laughs> and the interesting thing, and I, I also wanted to ask you about this, covering Metro for what is it's a strange place to be at because the New York Times is a national publication in almost every way. But then there's still a New York City paper and they're still covering New York from a metro perspective. And so you must get these readers in Oklahoma reading about <laughs> the New York taxi system. And I will say, I mean, I was interested and my wife like really liked it despite being brazilian and we live in brazil like found new york taxis interesting and so i I don't know where i'm going with this but do you get a lot of random people who have nothing to do with new york who react to your stories
1: yes You know, it's interesting. There's a conversation at the Times now about how to handle Metro, and there's been an ongoing conversation for years. And one of the facts that was shared with us at our last meeting that we are are to keep in mind is that the New York Times currently has more subscribers uh, in California than it does in New York. I mean, that's not a necessarily a shocking thing when you realize that the Times is a national publication and the population of california is bigger than the population of new york but it's really it's a reminder that it is a national publication and an, inter- an international publication and yes it's very dedicated to its hometown but Most of the people that are reading it don't live in the hometown. So it's a tricky balance for everybody on Metro. I kind of feel like the stories that I do are big enough. And, you know, if I'm spending six months or a year on them, they're probably outrageous enough that really a good story is interesting to anybody. I feel like I have to deal with that balance less because just the nature of what I do is inherently interesting. But yeah, it's definitely kind of a, an awkward situation sometimes.
0: Huh. But a good situation. And I mean, if you're in a position to produce good stories, yeah, people will read a good story. And who cares if they're in California or if they're in New York? <laughs> or um, Brazil. Or Brazil. <laughs> True. OK. And then for the other story, do you want to walk us through uh, your taxi medallion? I don't know how to sum it up in one word. How you got onto that story, how you came up with the idea and how walk us through how you reported it
1: yeah so the taxi story actually came from a very unlikely source it came from michael cohen president trump's former <laughs> lawyer really yeah maybe it's not an unlikely source because all the stories seem to come from him these days you know his home was raided and the fbi uh, was investigating him. And there was all this attention on his payments to Stormy Daniels. The Times decided that we needed to do a real hard look at him and do what we call an investigative profile, which really just looks back over his entire life and you know reports what we find. So there are five reporters that were assigned to work on this investigative profile. I was one of them. It was Just after the subway project had finished, I was kind of looking for my next project. So I was assigned to help with this. We all split up his life. Somebody took his family. Somebody took his legal career. Somebody took his work for Trump. Somebody took his real estate interests. And I was left with the last piece of his business career, which was the fact that he owned 30 New York City taxi medallions. (laughs) There are 13,000 medallions in New York. It's the permit that allows you to, to own a taxi. Half of them are owned by individual drivers, the guy behind the wheel. Uh, The other half are owned either by big fleets uh, or by investors. And investors like Michael Cohen buy these and hope they go up in price. So, The story with Cohen that everybody was talking about was that he had invested in these medallions and had become very rich because of them, but then had had some financial difficulty because the value of a taxi medallion had been worth a million dollars and it had fallen down. To $200,000. And that was kind of the conventional wisdom. And everybody was focused on the value falling. Everybody thought it was due to Uber and Lyft. And I was reading about this as I was doing my research on Cohen. And I was really, something really bothered me about that. And what bothered me was why had it ever cost a million dollars? To buy a taxi medallion, like I said, half of these people are the guy behind the wheel is buying it. And mm-hmm. why would they spend a million dollars for? First of all, why would you spend a million dollars on any to get any job? But why would you spend a million dollars to get that job where well, you're behind the wheel <laughs> of a cab for eighty hours a week? You know, I've talked to cab drivers; they're all miserable. They're, you know, most of them are immigrants. A lot of them don't speak English. It seemed very weird that the value had ever been a million dollars and so I finished up my story uh, on Cohen and then I you know started poking around on the on the taxi industry because it seemed like it was something that needed to be investigated sure enough I, I soon found out that the value had not been a million dollars for very long. And in fact, only a few years before it was a million dollars, it was $200,000. And there had been this dramatic increase in the price. It was kind of like the special ed story in which I just, there was something in the math that didn't make sense. And so I launched into trying to find out what had happened. So that's how it got started.
0: Right. Yeah. And uh, it's all uh, laid out in the show. So you get into how the city government was focused on the price and basically trying Kind of complicit in pumping up the price, and these investors were kind of playing all sides of the market from you know financing to buying the medallions and making money off the value going up and a kind of a a bit of market manipulation, a bit of speculation, yeah, and yeah. one very striking thing to me about it is you do one interview with a guy who I think was the head of this board, and you know you really grill him about like this stuff going on or like didn 't you feel like you should do something? I can't remember who he was, but I'm sure you do. How I, I'm always like maybe because I'm in foreign countries, but oftentimes like I feel like these type of people, you know, they just won't sit down with you. They just wouldn't agree to an interview. Um, and I'm just amazed when I see these people sitting down for an interview. And I don't know if it's because they're local officials or, you know, why? Why did this guy sit down with you? Do you think?
1: Well, I, let me. I don't want to be too specific about this guy, but I, I, let me say in general. Yeah, sure. I find that there are a couple of reasons in general why somebody might sit down with us. First is they know we have the story and they want to get their side into it. And that definitely happens. But I think more often is, and instead of coming out of a place of, you know, just wanting to get their side in, it comes out of a place of arrogance. They feel like they are so good at what they do that if they get in the room with me, I won't stand a chance with them. They'll outmaneuver me and get me over to their side of thinking about it. And, you know, I, I just think that people are really confident in <laughs> their abilities to convince people of, you know, what they did was not only right, but smart and good and well and then the other thing is that they people want to get in in the New York Times. Um, So there's some ego there. You know, everybody wants to get in the New York Times. So I think it's a combination of ego, arrogance, and uh, a little bit of wanting to get your perspective in.
0: Sure. Yeah. I guess I understand not uh, wanting to talk about this specific guy. I will say I do think of one instance that, yeah, I wouldn't want to talk about, but where basically, you know, I put a person in a position where it was going to look worse if they didn't talk to me. I kind of put them in a position where they couldn't refuse to talk to me. And I mean, that's never comfortable. Um,
1: Yeah, I've uh, done that too. We did that with a debt collector, a notorious debt collector in the industry that was recently arrested, actually, because of what we reported about him. But, you know, we basically laid out everything that we had found and we included everything, including some things that we were less sure about, but we had found that we might report. And we basically represented that, you know, unless you get us off of this, we're going to report it. And at that point, he really had to call and he did Uh,
0: high pressure interview situations though i would say
1: i like it honestly the confrontational interview is is my favorite part because it's so it's so real i mean this is you know i'm sitting across the table from somebody who i have been you know take that interview with Matthew Doss, the former commissioner. I mean, I had been researching this topic for months, and I've been talking to hundreds and hundreds of cab drivers who had been screwed over by things that this guy had allowed to happen. And all of them would kill for the opportunity that I had to sit down with him. And I felt like I owed them. I I was representing them in that moment. I got the opportunity to really hold his feet to the fire. It's just, I mean, I, I just view it as a really exciting opportunity to hold people accountable and, you know, if you've done the research like I get to do and I've, I've done months and months of research, you know, I feel very prepared going into that room. And yeah, so I don't I don't typically get nervous.
0: That's interesting, but that's a good quality to have. I, and I didn't want to rush through the story so you said there are two stories out and a third one to come. What, what were the first two? How, how did you focus them?
1: Just to be clear for anybody who hasn't read the story, the story is about how a bunch of industry insiders not only manipulated the market to artificially inflate medallion values, but then more troublingly, when the prices were inflated, trapped Thousands of immigrant cab drivers into loans to buy these medallions, loans that the lenders knew were never going to be paid back, but were basically designed to create short-term profits for themselves. And those were the practices that were laid out and the scheme that was laid out really in in part one. And, you know, as these stories typically do, we picked up one victim and we told their story and what had happened to them. So that was part one. And then part two was all about the government regulators and how government regulators had ignored warning signs about this for years. And in the case of the city, had not only failed to stop it, but had actively encouraged it by choosing to sell new medallions Uh, to make money for the city and running these ads that claim that medallions were a path to a worry-free retirement and better than the stock market and basically bulletproof investment and really participating in the inflation of the medallion. So those are parts one and two. We are pursuing some additional reporting now. I don't want to get into the details of exactly what part three is going to be, but we're following some other threads related to the story.
0: How much longer, or do you not even know um, when you would do a part three. like Do you have a deadline? How how does that part work?
1: I do, actually, and it's coming up. It's not really ideal to put part of the story out there and then have a long gap before we tell the rest of the story, so there is some pressure to get it out. Uh We were hoping for the end of July. Now we're thinking maybe the beginning of August takes time. Maybe it'll be late August, but hopefully sometime this summer we'll be able to do part three, and then then we have some other stories we want to do, too. I sat down with my editor recently and we kind of sketched out the other things we want to say about this topic and uh, what we've found in our reporting. And we probably have probably three more installments to do. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, probably, hopefully, by the end of 2019. So that's the plan.
0: Wow. It must be a lot of stuff you're finding. It must be a bit strange to put your flag down and have people know you're on a story and they're aware of the story. It's different when like you're reporting something out and other people don't know what you're up to, but I don't know that many I think publications would be foolish to try to take you on and, you know, swoop in on the story um, now. Maybe they yeah, we have a bit of a head start. Maybe they don't know who they're dealing with. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, this is all fascinating stuff. Is there anything else about kind of your career and your life uh, you'd like to say before we move on to the next segment? One point that I
1: think is kind of interesting that I try to make when I'm talking to students is you look at my career, I have never successfully applied for a job. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I've unsuccessfully applied for jobs. But the job in Seattle was I had done the internship and then they reached out to me and asked me to come. The job in Texas, I was working in Seattle. They reached out to me because of my internship at the Post. And then, of course, my job at the Times, they had reached out to me based on the story I'd written. So I think it's a testament to how jobs often are based on the people you know, the connections you have, and the work that you do more so than applications. So I think that's kind of an interesting uh, pattern.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I mean, I would say, let's walk through my jobs. I got the job in Myrtle Beach because Noman knew a guy who had just gone through there and a train of Northwestern people had gone through there. I got my job at uh, the magazine in China I worked at because I emailed around and a Northwestern professor, again, who Nelman no knew and I didn't really know, <laughs> knew a guy who worked at the FT, who knew the publisher of this random-ass magazine, who I guess I said, you know, so-and-so said to email you and he was like, oh, this guy knows this guy. And Mm -hmm. then I got that job. And then at Reuters, like I was applying for the traineeship and I called the six people I knew at Reuters and was like, can you put in a good word for me? So mine was a bit more pushy. I mean, people weren't ringing me up, but still it was the random, here's a job posting, send your application thing. Just that has never gotten me a job, Um, which I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. uh, Yeah. Um, I, I guess the other thing is just that um, to talk about this chain of, of working your way up through local papers. I mean, I've talked about it with Noman and with other people that, you know, it just didn't seem like a viable path. And most people tend to agree, but obviously you're able, were able to do it. Are you like a unicorn or do you, would, do you think it actually is possible for most people if they are willing to work hard enough?
1: I think it is possible for most people, not only if they're willing to work hard enough, but they they also you do have to get lucky, no doubt about it. I can name several points in my trajectory where I got very lucky, but you have to you, see, you have to get lucky. You have to work hard, and you also have to work hard in the right ways, and not just with the stories you do. Another thing I always tell students, and I tell job candidates, is having one or two amazing clips is. A million times more valuable than having a hundred good clips. Like uh-huh. you can do your job well every day, but nobody's gonna notice that unless you have some really standout, incredible examples of you at your absolute best. And that is, it's so important. And so I think you have to be ambitious. You have to like, think about that. You have to really make that a goal in and of itself. But yeah, I mean, if you do the right things, it's absolutely possible. And it's not just me. There are other people with even today, this type of trajectory that are getting hired by the times and getting hired at other places.
0: That's good to hear. Was there ever a point where you weren't sure if you were going to make it as a journalist? make it to where you are today
1: i don't think so (laughs) i mean that's good (laughs) i guess i'm coming off as overly confident but i mean well there was certainly a point where i didn't i wasn't sure i was going to make it you know in my 20s or in my you know or or to be at an investigative position but i was fairly confident that if i kept working and doing what i was doing i was going to get here at some point
0: yeah i guess one of the keys is just to not be in too big of a rush to keep at it Uh, and i guess that's Was a lot of my problem and a lot of people's problems in their twenties that you know a year felt like an eternity. And in retrospect, it wasn't really. And you know, I'm glad I got where I was today. But I I, there's like the job in Myrtle Beach. I got some good stories, but I wish I had kind of enjoyed it and hungered down a bit more. Hindsight's twenty twenty, and maybe I would be stuck in Myrtle Beach. But I think I was a little bit too focused on getting to a certain place rather than I don't know the work I was doing or. something like that. Yeah. But anyway, uh, that's good to hear. And, uh, you know, maybe if someday uh, any uh, students listen to this, it's, you know, something I could have used to hear back then (laughs) that it is possible. Okay. The next uh, segment is called the lightning round, where I ask a bunch of rapid fire questions. Uh, Is there anything else you want to say before we get into that? No, let's do it. Okay, cool. So lightning round, here we go. What is usually the first thing you check when you wake up in the morning and you grab your computer or your phone? Twitter. And would you say Twitter is important to you?
1: Sadly, yes. People always ask, what's your primary news source? And my answer is Twitter. I mean, that's just, I I feel like I, I am following a good group of people. And I trust their news judgment. And, you know, that is where I get my news to find out what's happening, to find out the big stories, the serious stories, the stories about the topics I'm focused on, as well as the lighter stories and the sports stories. And it's really tailored for me. And I use it a lot. I really do. And I'm trying to use it less, but it really is so beneficial for me.
0: Well, that's good. If it works for you, that's good. Do you send tweets much or is it just to read?
1: I have really dramatically scaled back on my sending. Basically, my mantra is I don't tweet something if somebody else can do it. Like, I want to focus on what I'm adding to the conversation, so I'll never tweet breaking news or Trump news. I mean, that's just not people are not coming to my Twitter feed for that. Um, So I tweet, you know, my own stories, other investigative stories about New York that I think are really good. And, you know, I tweet about public records a lot in New York because that's really important to me. And I, I tweet about the times a little bit, you know, if we hire people or if we do something good or bad. But that's really
0: it. Well, it sounds like you're approaching Twitter in a, a sensible way. I do know, like, people complain it's an echo chamber. But more more than that, I guess what I'm saying is just, like, I don't think I have a coherent philosophy when it comes to Twitter. And most. The time, I'm just like what am I doing here? <laughs> when I'm yeah, on yeah. It? Next question What is a must read publication that you look at almost every day and it can't be the New York Times?
1: <laughs> For me, it is the website I visit the most, is, is called MLB Trade Rumors.com.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm a baseball addict, I'm especially a Cubs fan, so I read the Cubs pages, the fan pages. That's the website I visit the most on. But you know, to more seriously answer your question, other than the Times. You know, I love getting on ProPublica. I mean, I'm such an investigative journalism junkie, and so I really like to see what their latest is. So I'll say that.
0: Okay, sure. Any particular subject matter other than baseball, I guess, that isn't related to your job that you are really um, into reading?
1: I, I am fascinated by anything about—I guess maybe it's a little unsurprising that I've focused on transportation because I am fascinated stuff about the subway. <laughs> Stuff about airplanes. Anybody post something about airplanes, I'm going to eat that up. I mean, there was a recently an Atlantic article about people that arrived late to the airport. That stuff <laughs> I, I love, I got to say.
0: Interesting. I yeah, know that stuff is good. What's the best journalistic article piece or whatever you want to say, podcast, etc., that you've consumed recently?
1: Yeah, I'm going to go with the story I keep coming back to recently Uh, it's been a year or so now but uh, it was a story you read the story the unbelievable story of rape
0: no where was uh where was that
1: It, it was published a partnership between propublica and the marcel project by two of the best investigative reporters in the country, uh, Ken Armstrong, who I got to know in Seattle, one of those legends in Seattle, and T. Kristen Miller. And it's a story about a woman who reported that she was raped, and police investigated, and they found some holes in her story, and they uh, ended up arresting her for falsely reporting a rape, and she was in trouble for that. And- Of course, you know, I I don't think I'm spoiling too much to say that that that, that is not what really happened and and she actually was raped and that not only that, but that because police didn't take her seriously, this man went on to rape many, many more people. And it's a topic that has been written about the issue of rape investigations and how we don't take those allegations seriously enough and the investigations are not complete enough. But this story was written in the most compelling and exact way of any story I've ever read in my life. And honestly, I've, I've, like, I've never really cried while reading a story, but I, I did with this one because it's just so heartbreaking. And so that's my favorite right now.
0: What's it called again?
1: An Unbelievable Story of Rape.
0: Okay. I'll definitely check that out. I mean, obviously, it's a horrible story, but it sounds um, worth looking at.
1: Yeah. It won the Pulitzer for feature writing uh, oh, last okay. year, and they're actually making it into a Netflix show right now.
0: So. okay. Huh. I'm sure my wife will watch that. She loves anything crime related. Um, <laughs> what other social media do you use and how, if any?
1: Uh, I use Facebook. I like Facebook. You know, I feel like Facebook gets a bad rap. All my friends, I can connect with so many people via that. I have so many photos there. I don't know. I, I really like it and I still use it. And I feel like, sadly, a lot of people are moving away from it. And I feel like old now that I use Facebook. But um, I like Facebook. I like Twitter. I use Instagram to post what I'm doing all the time. That's about it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess there's not that much more social media. Well, there
1: are. You know, now people are telling me about TikTok. You familiar with TikTok?
0: Uh, I've heard the name. I don't really understand what it is.
1: (laughs) It's coming. It's it's going to be the next big thing. But, uh, you know, that's out there. Some people have Snapchat. And I know there are different things, but I, I try to keep it pretty contained.
0: Yeah, I feel what you're saying about Facebook. I mean, yeah, all my family's on it, friends. My wife just froze her account, and I just, like, I get the logic there, but I just can't bring myself to do it, I feel like i <laughs> Cutting myself <laughs> off from too many people, and I mean, so I memories. do. Yeah, and I wish I was more comfortable sharing stuff about my life than I am and like I see friends who do that and I'm like I wish I was more out there and I do feel I generally get a positive response when I do put something out there but you know this kind of I don't know I feel like I post too many like here's my life event and not enough here's something random or fun or something like that anyway my relationship with Facebook (laughs) (laughs) so the next are a series of yes or no questions take them as you will first one Glenn Greenwald yes or no (laughs) I'm going to go with no. Okay. Do you want to expand on that? You don't have to.
1: You know, I don't know him and his perspective as much as I should, but you know, he says some things and does some things that I think are problematic.
0: Sure. But it is interesting to see, I will just say real quick, that people outside the U.S. are far more likely to say yes, and people in the U.S. are far more likely to say no. And I think that's for several different reasons I won't uh, get into, but you can probably guess. Next up, Vice Media, yes or no?
1: Uh, Yeah, I like Vice. Okay. The piece they did on Southwitzville last year was one of the best. That that was Vice, right?
0: Uh, I don't know. I haven't heard about it anymore. they
1: did this it was like a mini documentary or they about their reporter was embedded with the white supremacists in Charlottesville the day that that attack happened and one of the best video pieces I've seen recently it was really well done
0: okay I'll have to check that out too this one might or might not apply to you the wire season five yes or no
1: <laughs> no 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 you've seen it yeah I've definitely seen it I mean it's, <laughs> it's good television but you know I, this it's not we have enough problems in our business. We don't need some like that's not realistic that so that would happen.
0: Yeah, making up the serial killer thing. Yeah, yeah. It, it is good TV. I like the way the newsrooms presented. Yeah, yeah that part me too. is a little problematic. About it was obviously before all this fake news stuff, but um, I wonder if uh, David Simon, if he could go back and do it today, if he would still lay that out there with everything that's going on. Right. Exactly. If you had to trade places with one journalist, living or dead, and you would have their career, who would it be?
1: This is one that you mentioned to me in the email that you asked people. And I uh, I don't know. I feel like obviously there are so many moments in history that (laughs) I would love to have had a front row seat for and cover. I think the answer I'll give though is there's an investigative reporter at the Times who I really respect and have long really respected and just feel like he has led a career that's obviously done a ton of really impactful work and done in the right way. That is Paul Bogdanich. He's won three Pulitzer's for his investigative reporting. He's been at the Times for 20 years. And before that, he uh, actually worked for television for 60 minutes. So he's done some different things, also worked for the Wall Street Journal. And I just really respect him. And he's gotten the opportunity to do a lot of really great in different types of
0: investigations cool what is one thing about yourself that most people don't know
1: well, first of all I, I love the Chicago Cubs. I'm obsessed with the Chicago Cubs. I watch pretty much every game somehow. So maybe my boss didn't know that. But I feel like it come off as a very serious journalist, but I also happen to be just completely obsessed with baseball. But I think like more of a fun fact, if that's what you're looking for. Um sure. I'm an Eagle Scout and
0: Oh wow, okay.
1: When I was in the Boy Scouts, I sold in two thousand two I sold the most popcorn of any boy scout <laughs> in the state of
0: indiana oh wow man i used to be a boy scout i remember selling popcorn i was the worst boy scout though i never made it past tenderfoot i like got two merit badges and that's not i was in the boy scouts for years i was just very bad at it uh, so uh well you were in it
1: for the right reasons you were in it for <laughs> like having you know enjoying it and learning from it I was just looking for the the mayor badges.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I knew a couple legal cats. They're all like it's a worthwhile endeavor, I would say for sure. But yeah, I just didn't yeah, have the attitude for it at the time. Cool. And then what is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists? So like a meta thing about journalists, for example, like The Wire season 5. Yeah.
1: That that one's an easy one for me. It's Spotlight. I just think that that is such an accurate portrayal of what we do every day. And, you know, whereas it's The Wire season five, people watch that who don't know us. You know, that hurts our credibility. Spotlight is just so, I just love that people got a chance to see that because that is what we do every day. And I'm so proud of what we do every day. And I love that people got a chance to see it so that's one of my favorite movies
0: of all time yeah spotlight is great and uh i've talked about with another guest about how even some of the little details like the standing around having cake for someone's retirement (laughs) is like a very newsroom thing (laughs) like yeah um, what's your answer on that one that is a very good question i feel like i had an answer at one point but it's escaping me now i've heard too many what huh. is it
1: as soon as it gets um, turned on you you can't answer the questions
0: <laughs> you're the second person to turn it on me the only person <clears throat> asks like ask me the next question i'll ask you um and i was able to think of an answer on my feet i mean i do like the wire a lot i do like the wire season five and i mean that's probably why I add, i've added that question to ask everybody about the wire season five let me try to think if there's another thing i mean i i I just like pop entertainment and so like i mean there's one that where russell crowe is a reporter and he's just driving around in his like dirty ass car i think Mm -hmm. it's state of play and it's also like a thriller not very accurate but i just like love that but yeah i need to think harder on what my favorite thing about journalists is i hate the newsroom oh man have you seen that oh yes oh the opening scenes and At
1: Northwestern.
0: Yeah, exactly. But I just cringe at the like recent past reporting like and how obviously like Aaron Sorkin like in retrospect you could do it all right and they do it right often and I'm like hindsight is 2020. Anyway I'll come up with a better answer and get back to you. <laughs> and then the last question is qualifications aside if you couldn't be a journalist what job would you do?
1: Oh man. I mean can I just say like a, a basketball player? <laughs> sure. is, that, is that a cop out because that's not serious? I mean qualifications aside basketball is my favorite sport to play. I feel like I'm, I am making be happiest
0: on the basketball court that that, that, i mean i did say qualifications aside so (laughs) i'll allow it i'll allow it okay well uh that's all my questions um thanks so much for coming on the podcast i really can't say thanks enough it's been a great conversation
1: well thanks for having me yeah I, i really appreciate it
0: that's our show thanks for listening to my conversation with brian rosenthal of the new york times I'll post links to some of the things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a five-star review. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a positive review saying what you like about the podcast. It helps get the podcast more attention in Apple Podcasts and other apps. You can find us on Twitter at, at or or tweet about us with the hashtag, hashtag foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. Our show's music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, September 22nd. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence